following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener, Shopping Mall, Avatar, The Way of Water, Conan the Barbarian, Flash, Gordon, Alien, Heavy Metal, Guardians of the Galaxy, His Dark Materials, Forbidden Planet, Logan's Run, Demolition Man, The A-Team, An American Tale, Future War, Laser Blast, The Magnificent Seven, and Seven Samurai. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie and then try to determine which one is cooler. Robots, dinosaurs, or a giant spaceship with boobs. Uh, I'm your host, Luigi, and with me as always is my co-host. In this case, two co-hosts. Uh, and the co-host is always the person that picks the movie, and, and uh, so now you know who's responsible for this one. Um, so <laughs> today I've got a video game critic, Evan Norris, and B-movie masochist and returning Robot, Robots vs. Dinosaurs co-host, Jason Karubia. Welcome to the show, Evan and Jason. Hello. Great to be here. Hello, thanks for having us. So either one of you could take this. Who wants to tell the listeners what movie we are talking about today? I'll take it because it was my bad idea. <laughs> uh, so randomly, I saw a reference to this movie on uh, TikTok about maybe a week and a half ago. And um, I'm a big fan of of watching not, o- not only bad movies, but movies that people haven't typically seen. Uh, the movie that we're watching is uh what is this movie what the hell are we watching oh yeah battle beyond the star wars episode four wait say that again battle beyond the stars oh my gosh i really thought that it was uh, star wars episode four a new hope based on what i saw but okay you're probably right it's (laughs) you're probably right it had a different name my bad yeah and uh the, the reasoning for this movie to be watched primarily is because of of the great roger corman um you know, the infamous Roger Corman, I should say. Uh, he he is probably the godfather of American B-movies, mm-hmm. um, producing yeah. uh, a lot of the great films that, that, uh, that are now staples. And the man who is notoriously known for killing the George Reeves Superman franchise uh, was Superman 4. RBD listeners, uh, you're, you, if you've listened to the recent Chopping Mall episode, Roger Corman is also, um, at, at least his wife is like the credited uh, producer for that movie. Um, what, is, what exactly is Roger Corman's uh, c- contribution to this movie? Because I did see that his name was attached to it, but when I looked it up on IMDb, it says uh, the director was Jimmy T. Murakami, um, who's also well known for heavy metal. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and the writer was John Sales, but yep. I didn't see Roger Corman. Yeah, it's Roger Corman's produ- production company. So he's um, the producer. Okay. Yeah, he's a producer, and uh, it's a new is it New World uh, Pictures, I believe. Um, that's his production company. Um, don't fact me, check me on that, but it's probably <laughs> yeah, New World Pictures. Um, and he he's also known for bringing into the industry some very very big names that are now staples of 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 fantastic talent and, and uh for example he's known for having the first giving the first shot big shot to francis ford coppola mm. um ron howard um martin scorsese uh peter bagdanovich um and and specifically with this movie and this is the big spoiler james cameron yes 
So James Cameron being the production uh, designer of this film prior no, to really prior to doing Aliens. So all of the spaceships, all of the scenic design, all of the costumes has his flair to it. Why was James Cameron so horny in 1980? <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a story about that. Uh, I, I looked it up. Um, uh-huh. James Cameron. Uh, who uh, Jason is absolutely right. He this was kind of his big break, from what I've read, mm-hmm. and um, apparently he did all the models. The models of which, um, you know, in this movie, that is a big highlight for me. I love the ship designs, how unique and different they were. But Cameron was responsible, along with a crew of other production designers, in creating some. From what I've read, uh, creating a bunch of options for Corman. And uh, there's a quote that I pulled out here. This is Cameron was in a, um, he recalls this in a book called Roger Corman, King of the Bee Movie. So it sort of became a design contest. I thought, okay, it's Roger Corman. He does girls in bamboo cages movies. What is he selling? (laughs) He sells tits. So I designed a kind of Amazon warrior spaceship, basically a spaceship with tits. It was a cool design. So James Cameron, who just made 2.4 billion with Avatar 2, brought us the spaceship with tits in 1980. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, James Cameron. Oh, man. Wow. Uh, I'm so happy that you found that, Evan. Thank you. Yeah, Uh, that's choice. That that is, I haven't heard much about this movie prior to watching it this week, Um, but any time it's been brought up, the two things that that I, I can recall people saying about it um, one, yeah, oh, that's that movie that's a ripoff of Star Wars. Um, and and also, oh, that's the one with the spaceship with boobs. <laughs> right. The two most well-known things of that movie. Um, well, the spaceship, uh, just touching on it, you, you see it in the beginning very, very it, quickly. Touching on it. it touching on Cause it. Because it. it's boobs, Jason. It kind of it looks like a slug, the way that it shakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like yeah. Snail slug. Thing. Snail slug. But the front of it kind of looks like, what was it? Uh, Momal Nadoon from uh, Star Wars Cantina. It's kind of got this kind of big head with, with kind of okay. like horn eyes to it. I, speaking of Star Wars, I well, I mean, we're going to talk a lot about Star Wars this episode. Um, but but it, it actually kind of looked like uh, the Razorback from The Mandalorian. Like there were certain shots where it kind of had that um, similar design, and then and then they would turn the camera towards the front of it, and I would see the boobs, but. <laughs> It's, it's one of those ships that they're probably not going to make a toy line out of. Yeah. Yeah. But it would sell. Somebody would buy it. Somebody would buy it. Don't buy it. Um, but yeah. So what the heck is this movie about, about other than a Star Wars ripoff? Yeah. Um, uh, Evan, why don't you give us a quick plot summary of Battle Beyond the Stars for those listeners who have not seen it yet? It would be my pleasure. Having watched it twice now, I I feel very familiar (laughs) with the story beats. So it is very much a space opera, very much modeled after the success of Star Wars, which came out three years before this, right? Mm -hmm. And it's also modeled heavily after Seven Samurai and the Magnificent Seven, in that it is uh, a group of... So it's a space opera, takes place in outer space. It is a, a planet... That it, a peace-loving people who live on this one planet that are Akir. under direct Akir, right? The, the people are the Akira, which uh, from what I've read <laughs> is a nod to Akira Kurosawa from the Seven Samurai. Um, and uh, so this kind of space-faring 
mutant uh, warmonger, warlord, uh, decides that Akir and its natural resources must be his. And so he arrives at the planet unannounced and threatens the people with this. Um, uh, you'll have to, the, the gang here will have to remind me the name, Stellar Converter. So he threatens the, the people <laughs> yeah. of Akir with the Stellar Converter, which is essentially a Death Star-esque mm-hmm. laser. And uh, this and, this character's name uh, is uh, is uh, Darth Vader. Is that right? Oh no, it's, I'm sorry, it's Seder. Seder. I was way <laughs> off. Yeah, I was I was so far off. Sorry. Um, yeah, and, and he yeah. is a fairly effective villain. Uh, and um, so he threatens the people of Akir, and then see, withdraws for a week, which to me was a very strange gambit uh, when he could just. <laughs> Like, he has I'm all the leverage. You. Think about it. I'm going to leave. I'll be right back. I got this I'm thing across the galaxy. Whatever you do, don't go out and assemble a group of seven mercenaries <laughs> who will eventually take me down. Yeah, was this like an ants and grasshoppers situation? Like, was he like, I'm going to leave for a week to give you the time to give me a better offering? Or was it just like, I don't feel like killing you until seven days from now? This is a great question. You know, he's he's going to blow up the planet regardless. He's going to take the resources and then blow up the planet. Um, so the question is, how bad do they want it? I guess. How bad do you want to do you want to die? He says he, he has a couple of questions like submit uh, or be destroyed or something along those lines in 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 so many words. Um, but yeah. It is a, is a it's certainly a plot convenience. It is revealed later that he was traveling to another planet another people he had he had put the pressure on and so he had to return there to make good on his his threat of of action um but it is a convenience so in so he, the people of akir have 7 days to figure out a solution most want to capitulate but uh one who is kind of the elder of the group who's a warrior um Zed thinks they should fight Zed. back Zed, who's kind of the i guess the sort of like an obi-wan kenobi analog sort of um mm-hmm. And uh, interestingly, the people of Akir have this pacifist philosophy. Um, and I'm blanking on the name of the, the, Varda. Oh, the Varda. The Varda. Yeah, so the this. Varda dictates what they do, and it's a very peaceful ideal. So they don't – they want to protect themselves, but they don't want to actually engage in violence against Darth Seder. And, <laughs> and, uh, and so the, their brilliant idea is to go out into space and find – people who will fight, uh, the violent, Zed calls them. And actually, there are a handful of lines of this movie that I do truly love. And Zed has a great line in this moment where he says, the violent fight for many reasons. Such a cool mm. line talking about, like, when they're, they're complaining, we don't have any money to give these people. And he says, the violent fight for many reasons, which is revealed to be true throughout the movie. And so the young kind of Luke Skywalker analog of the movie, um, who is... I'm blanking on his name now too, but he's played very well by oh, Richard Thomas. Richard um, Shad. 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 You. You're gonna name a, a lead character Shad. <laughs> you better <laughs> men have to bring their A game. I would. So Shad. I, mean, I, I wanna. I wanna just. I wanna say Shad Skywalker. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would name my my wor- my worst enemy's son Shad Skywalker. Uh, <laughs> I will say though, um, yeah. Shad reveals himself to be something of a Chad. Uh, he, does. he is a you know or, so, or Chode, um, whichever you prefer. <laughs> um, he volunteers. He takes Zed's old ship, and and that's where we get we can spend the whole two hours on the ship. <laughs> um, but 
and then he goes out into the space into space and kind of recruits um mercenaries with different ambitions and different priorities to return to Akira to fight on the Akira's behalf. And that kind of sets up the stage for the final confrontation. So Shad goes out into the, uh, the space and recruits the guardians of the galaxy (laughs) group of mercenaries to come save this peace loving planet. Um, And they're independent motivations to to join are questionable at that if any um, yeah but they do join um but yeah it's it's it, it's a, a plot that's loose enough you know that it, it works uh and it keeps you watching you know it's not it's we're not going to get too crazy with plot turns for this you know we're gathering people we're going back to the planet we're going to try to protect it and, and 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 destroy this uh this bad guy mm-hmm. um the planet, of course, being extremely beige. Beige being the color of <laughs> everything. Yeah, there are beige just, people, too, in personality. They describe Bakir as a stone, a planet of stone with a single green spot. It's so beige. I don't know if this is of the time. The movie was made in 1980. Uh, maybe beige was just a very comfortable color that was used with a lot of things. But it, it's a stark contrast to the bad guys. The bad guys are all cast in this very, very blue light. Mm-hmm. Orcs particularly. Um, and it, so you get a good contrast of the, of the, the two uh, scenic designs that James Cameron is giving us. Um, the only problem that I have though, with that scenic design is that there's absolutely the worst lighting available. So you see all the problems, all the problems of the set, mm-hmm. all the problems of the costumes, um, nothing is left for your imagination, unlike oh. Star Wars, which can get pretty gritty. You know, every time they grab like a control for a ship or like move it to the side, you see how flimsy it is and how how made of rubber it is. Yeah, I saw a few times where some boulders were falling. You absolutely yeah. know that they're foam, <laughs> but they're just like dropping on people's heads. It's like well, this is not real. I will say the production value. The, those things are not. Um, on my list of problems with this movie. <laughs> yeah. Those and- were like charming, amusing uh, incidents whenever they, whenever I saw them um, and did not take me out of the movie as much as just the repeated and, and flagrant um, ripoffs of, of not only star Wars, but like, I guess seven samurai, you can't really say it's a ripoff. It's more of an homage to seven samurai. Mm-hmm. Um but what they're doing to yeah. Star Wars is not homage. It is flagrantly, oh, this worked three years ago. Let's put as much of that, let's cram as much of that into our movie as possible. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and uh, Evan, I think you had it best when we were chatting via text. You, know, you were looking forward to the schlock, you know, that wonderful term yes. of just cheap wares or goods. And this, this movie is chock full of schlock. Um, but it <laughs> is very, very, very important schlock. It's James Cameron schlock, and we have to acknowledge yeah. that. It's probably like if you look, James Cameron, who delayed the release of Avatar Way of the Water for years because he felt the technology wasn't up to par. He didn't want to give a schlock. He's mm-hmm. definitely given a schlock here. And uh, well, what does schlock mean then? What, what, like, what, what do you, when you say schlock, what do you mean by that? Because that's a, a kind of a generic term, but like, what, what's your definition? I think I think it was Mel Brooks who had a good quote about schlock, you know, and, and it's, but it's basically cheap wares. Are goods um, in applied to movies? It's scenic design that you can see. Like you can see this, you can see the seams, you can see the zippers. Uh, you know, you 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 see the the poor production value of it. You know, they 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 just took whatever they had and put it on the screen. Okay, 
So it's almost synonymous with like low budget. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned I, I, the, the very schlocky this movie, and some of the schlockiest parts are the the funniest and funnest parts to me. Um, there's one scene that I really want to talk about later on, um, like about two thirds through when they've all landed on a cure, and uh, it's kind of the getting to know you phase. But there's a weird transition here. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, guys. Which is between. There are shots that look so high budget and professional, and then they immediately segue into a low budget shocky shot. And mm. it happens so early. So there's the first shot, which I actually love, which is the shot of that of Sador's ship. Not uh, the Tanta Four. It's not the Tanta Four, oh, you guys. Right. I, that's so funny. It not looks the like the, it, look, it looks like the blockade runner mixed with an Imperial uh, uh, Star Destroyer. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely ripping and, off the Star even Wars pans opening. around it to the to the engines in the back which is yeah. very much like that um but that shot i i was so it i immediately looked up this review um roger ebert my hero my favorite film critic the person who has the biggest influence on me in in how i love and and understand movies he had this great line in the pitch black uh review of pitch black the sci-fi movie from 2000 and it stuck with me i had to look it up after watching the movie the other night and he wrote in this, um, no, quote, no other movie opening thrills me more than a vast ship in interstellar space, end quote. And it's true. Think about 2001. Think about Star Wars. Like mm. all these, it's just so impactful, that massive metal frame floating in space. So that opening shot I loved. And I'm like, wow, look at this model. It's this so detailed. It's, and then they cut to the interior of that ship the one bathed in blue and green light that jason was talking yeah. about i'm like mm-hmm. well, who, what this is like a cardboard set with mute, mute, <laughs> people with latex mute masks running around so uh. that dichotomy carries through the whole movie and it's a little jarring because sometimes i'm like these models are i would i'd pay to get a, a model to build and put it in my mm-hmm. in a display case but um these styrofoam cardboard sets and and styrofoam boulders as jason mentioned it's kind of the complete opposite so it's part schlocky which is I'm fine with, but part of it, especially those ship models, looks extraordinary. And it's, yeah, it's I agree. The exteriors yeah. always look better than the interiors, for sure. Yeah, yeah and it's probably Cameron, um, you know, just knowing what works and and putting his best uh, foot forward to show what he can do. the The cinematography, uh, the directing, you know, that's something he doesn't have control over, but mm-hmm. he absolutely has some hand in some of that design. The the, the trick of the film is to show the schlock, but show it in the background, show the schlock and do it in bad lighting. So you only get the outline of it. So mm-hmm. alien, for example, the first alien didn't have the highest production value at times, although it was a big production, you know, for Ridley Scott, they just made sure that they shot it in, you know, very, very, you know, um, uh, high key lighting. So it's very contrast, you know, darks and lights and shadows, you know, like a traditional horror film. In in this movie, unfortunately, they it it's shot like a comedy or a television show where they just light everything, and yeah. and they're so afraid that they're they don't have enough lighting um, that the camera's not going to capture it. Uh, there's some bad bad um, shots in this film. Like there, you mentioned the good ones. Yeah, there's a couple of good space battle shots which they recycle over and over again. They use the shame oh, yeah. shots yeah. over <laughs> and over again. Like you'll probably cut at least thirty minutes off this movie by by just taking away the reused shots. Um, 
but there's a couple of shots that are just atrocious where the scenes are out of focus. Uh, the positioning of the actors is absurd and, huh. and it, it doesn't bring you into this, this scene at all. If anything, it distracts you and pulls you out. Mm. Um, for example, <laughs> there's that, there's, um, there's that, that one scene um, where Shad and, and the girl are, they're chatting and they're, uh, she's sitting on his lap. Nanelia. Nanelia. They're talking about, um, mating and love. And they're in this awkward position where they're trying to do a two person shot, like a, like a, like a, um, a medium shot with two people in it, but it's kind of over the shoulder and kind of not. And she's completely out of focus, but you see the back of Shad's head completely in focus. And, mm. and it goes on for like, for like a good two minutes of that. Um, I did. I did appreciate the ambition of the movie. Like they try, they really tried to show um, a lot of different cultures. Like that, uh, th- this kid is great. Point is going out and he's experiencing for the first time, and he's learning about them. And there's th- th- there's a lot of just like lines about like describing this whole entire. Uh, the Huddites, for example, they don't develop immunities until five cycles, and they have this whole ceremony that where the, the first time they break out of their plastoid and like that, that it's just this beautiful explanation of this entire other alien civilization. We don't ever even see them because I mean the budget, obviously, but the movie, but honestly, like the, you don't need to, because the movie is also showing you other completely realized alien civilizations, like the Nestor, um, the Nestor, yes. those dudes with the white, the the third eye on their head, and they're all in white. And what one experiences, the rest of them experience. So when one of them tries a hot dog for the first time, they all get that experience. <laughs> that's <a> yeah, <laughs> the, the, yeah that, that campfire scene is my uh, favorite in the whole movie. But even like the the interior of their ship was one of the most unique and very schlocky, very low budget. Yeah. It's just them standing around a table with holes cut out of it. But like the way that the, it takes three of them and like their finger positioning, like they're playing a piano determines the maneuvers of the ship and the, and the interior is all white. Like I appreciated stuff like that, that they took the time to really differentiate, you know, this group from Cayman's ship or, or Cowboy's ship or et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Like good sci-fi, you have to at least bring an additional culture outworldly culture but the yeah the nester you can see they're wearing these uh like what look like swim caps and they're all their hair is bunched (laughs) up in it you can see the seams you know they're trying though everything everyone's painted in white with a very much a like a uh photocopied eye on their head in the center (laughs) uh um my gosh uh and for a race of clones they look different which is unusual like they're supposed to be looking the same, but that's obviously the different actors. Yeah. <laughs> so the schlock is there. You just have to really just let it go. Just, just, just sit back and enjoy the schlock. Yeah, I do. I do like the collection of um, side characters that Shad brings together. Uh, you have the Nestor, um, who you know, not one of them stands out because they're all the same, and like that's kind of the point of their culture. Um, you have Cayman. Cayman was a really fun character. Um, Cayman was the one that captures Shad and is like, congratulations, you're going to be fed to a Zyme. Um, and then when he finds out that they're fighting Darth Seder, he's like, oh, I'm in. Like, I have a personal <laughs> yeah. vendetta against that dude. <laughs> he's like, now, now I'm Darth guessing <laughs> Cayman is the one who, who justified the robot versus dinosaur. I figured he's dinosaur-ish enough. That's a good point. I was going to ask, yeah, would would yeah. you count Cayman as a dinosaur? Because he's kind of, he's, what's what's that guy from uh, Empire Strikes Back, Bosk? 
Yeah. A Transdotion. Yeah, he looks like a Transdotion um, in some way. I that I figured that that uh, I figured Cayman satisfied the dinosaur requirement, and I figured mm-hmm. the androids at Doctor Hephaestus's Dr. great Hephaestus name, Doctor Hephaestus's <laughs> station, satisfied the robots. And, Dr. And Hephaestus' station. That, th- okay, that's one of my problems with the movie. That's <laughs> <laughs> We got to unpack that. Uh, um, uh, yes, Dr. Hephaestus and his robots. Also, I would count Nell. Nell, Nell the AI, the of, AI. The, oh. of the ship that Shad is in. Uh, I would definitely count her as like one of our robot characters. Um, yeah, there is a common thing in sci-fi, especially like low-budget B-movie sci-fi, from... The 50s and from like the revival of it in the 70s, where it's very specific and very weird. I can name like three or four movies where it happens, Forbidden Planet for one, mm-hmm. where it's uh astronaut or space explorer um, finds a scientist who's been isolated with nobody but his daughter who was raised from birth to live on this like remote installation and never encounter humans until this one male 18-year-old space explorer and then they immediately the and 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 to to push the specificity of this even further <laughs> the doctor character always pimps out his daughter to the space explorer character absolutely and yeah. it's like you're obviously you're going to marry her and have obviously. babies right fact, away i'm going to hold you hostage here yeah. at my space station you guys are going to beg it's good it's it's pretty wild um i was waiting for the plot twist where it turns out she was an android as well and he created yes her. Which is a very common thing as well. You know, the, I was the, waiting the, for that shoe to drop the whole movie. Yeah, it never happened. Never happened. Do, uh, Dr. Hephaestus, who apparently is a weapons specialist, uh, that's why they were going to go visit him uh, on his space station, which which seemed abandoned. But then once he once uh, he comes aboard, you know, the they they real Shad realizes that it's in full of uh, androids, androids who kind of are just painted silver. Uh, <laughs> They're they're people. They're just they're not hold, they're not holding yeah. anything back. They're just actors painted silver. Um, our first introduction to to the, the girl. She's working on an android who's only half there. Mm-hmm. Uh, his his body is open, and it's obviously like that clever trick where they stick someone's head in front of a big prop. Uh, so so it looks like it's their really their body, you know, with all these machines coming out of it. But you can tell it's a giant, huge, you know. Uh, a set piece with someone just standing behind it. Is you that know, when, the dude when, that like when, when she's doing a, turning wire or turning screws or whatever, he starts singing. He starts yes. singing. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, if you watch a, a shot where they doing something simpler, similar with Iron Man, uh, Tony Stark putting in the arc reactor into his chest. Um, uh, John Favreau does a great job of, of hiding, you know, the, the, uh, the shot, you know, the, the smoke and mirrors, you can't see anything at all. You know, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a good perspective, but for some reason, our, our director who primarily is an animation director, maybe didn't understand that when they were establishing these shots and scenes with the cinematographer. And, and uh, we just, we just see everything. We, we see that it's, it's, it's schlock, you know, it is again, though, personally, like stuff like that, like them having to work around the constraints of their budget, that is that is not at all what bothered me. I and I didn't hate this movie. I like I enjoyed this movie. <laughs> but that set piece, yeah, was um, James Cameron, you know, like building a robot half a half, you know, made and, and people working on him and stuff. So that I mean, you know, it's very similar to like Bishop. Bishop at some yeah. point is like just half of him is sticking out. It's clearly just a guy standing under a table 
Um, but think, it works. I think Aliens, the second, of course, James Cameron's Aliens, is a lot of him trying to fix the problems of this movie. Uh, you know, for example, Bishop, you know, and and uh, and in some of the 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 interior shots, you know, that didn't really look as authentic as he wanted. You know, he was able to really, you know, play with the lighting, play with the camera, you know, play with the dollies as as he's trucking the the camera around the scenes and and make it look look a little bit more authentic and real. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. The <laughs> this um. What was I going to say about the... Dr. Hephaestus? Dr. Hephaestus. I think that's actually everything I have to say about Dr. Hephaestus. I, I, will, a, add, yeah. oh, I will add to this that, I, Lou, you were talking about, it, the, the movie does do a good job at world building, right? It mm-hmm. feels like each ship looks different and is informed by the culture that built it. Each culture has its own background. I will say there is a, another plot convenience in that every single mercenary and seven different cultures all happen to exist in the same pocket of space within a seven days journey of a cure without any faster than light, light travel. Um, well, including they, Earth, this, by the way, the the language actually they they touch upon that they have a universal language translator. Oh yes, so that weather satellite that gets blasted oh. in the first so they, few they minutes. Kind of, yeah, the first two minutes with a very sparkly explosion, <laughs> the disco explosion of the weather satellite in the first two minutes. I wrote um, that down. It gets sparkled out of existence. Out of existence, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they have a universal translator, so that apparently that's how they can understand each other. Uh, uh, but okay. not only does and then, and then there's the Kelvin that communicate through heat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The Kelvin community. Well, they proved to be very effective. Very yeah. effective. Yeah. Um, but each not only each race has a name, they have a kind of little backstory, something unique, but but everyone has a has a name themselves. So even all the androids have names. And I was I was writing them down, you know, as I was going, you know, uh Saunders, Leprous, and Skew. Uh Saunders I liked. I don't know that actor, but that was a good performance. That one stood out to me. Right. Oh, that so, that was the comic relief scene, right? When he kept being pulled back into the conversation. Yep. Yeah, I think and, he even had like glasses and a bow tie. Yep. Yeah. Why does an android need fucking glasses? <laughs> <laughs> why don't you can't see? Apparently, <laughs> why? Why did they give the android glasses? <laughs> uh, I mean, Doctor Festus has been alone pretty much for years in that station. He, he Wanted to play dress up a few times, I guess. Maybe, maybe it's like a Westworld scenario where he's recreating scenes from like the Wild Wild West, but that would be Space Cowboy who was doing it. He would have done that with the androids. Yeah. Speaking of Space Cowboy, I would love to get your, I'd love to talk a little about the acting here because there mm-hmm. are some performances I thought were actually quite good and some that I Agreed. thought were middle of the road and some pretty much every extra deplorable like mm-hmm. uh the, any scene that had kind of a, a character especially in akira per- performing who didn't have like a name in the credits was was routinely a kind of distracting but um george papard who i love i'm sure we mm-hmm. all love from the a-team Hannibal, i found right? and, yeah and i thought i expected space cowboy george papard i'm like oh man this is going to be like a wild crazy george Papard's just going to take a big bite out of the scenery and yeah. <laughs> i'm going to love this it was kind of a muted tired performance almost and maybe that was mm-hmm. the character he had like been through a lot and he was over the hill but i was kind of expecting papard to to give the best performance the, the person i thought who gave the best well was was definitely richard thomas who played 
the Shad and who's the Luke Skywalker yeah. type. Just a very sincere, genuine performance, which I loved. But Robert Vaughn. Robert as, fucking Vaughn, man. Robert Vaughn. Dude, that whole scene when we find him on the, the hedonistic pleasure planet, yeah. it's just him <laughs> in, on that throne sur- surrounded by gold, holding the blaster. Oh, man. Emotionless face. Yeah. And his dialogue, he now he did not phone it in. He was put put a hundred percent into that performance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Robert Vaughn uh, always had a spot in our hearts, and in, in, in for a few of my friends and I in high school, because he was the the face on the law offices of Mark oh, yes. Salamone commercials. You're right. Uh, and Morelli, and I, 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 I'm looking at this now as an adult. They did these commercials for different lawyers and sold them to different areas of the country. So if you grew up, I guess, in, in a different area like California or, or New York or, or Chicago, it was a different lawyer's name. But it was like this kind of uh, situational um, event where it was like, uh, they got a lawyer. Who is it? Oh, it's Marky uh-huh. Salamone. Oh, we better settle this one, that type yep. of thing. And then they have Robert Vaughn come on. And so he's like, you tell them you got Marky Salamone and you mean business. <laughs> Call the law office of Marky Salamone right now. And it's that stern, really, really, really – um, you know, yes. effective, uh, convincing manner that he has, which he brings here, you know, like I will do anything you say, Robert Vaughn, please don't kill me. It's just, mm-hmm. just so disturbing and, and, uh, commanding of the screen. It's not like he's chewing on the scenery at all. Uh, but he also has the best lines. Like, uh, they were talking about, uh, like when he was on the, uh, on that pleasure planet, you know, he says like nothing was left but me and lower forms and, uh, the lower forms, that's what they call life forms, like lower life forms. Yeah, everybody's like a form. They, yeah. they refer to beings as forms, which I thought was neat. Right. I like that he, nomenclature. Yeah. And he says, like, what did you do to survive? He's like, I ate serpent seven times a week, a mm. meal, and a place to hide. That's all he wants. You know, like, yep. that's yes. all, the, all he wants out of the love entire event of saving the planet is just a meal and a place to hide. And I love the resolution of that. I love that when he dies in battle... They're like, dig a grave. Shad says to somebody, he's like, dig a grave and put um, put a hot meal and make a hot meal because that's yeah. all he wanted. So the character's name is Gelt, right? Mm-hmm. Gelt. And uh, he says he was born in space. That's yeah. all he says. <laughs> uh, his next line is the best because somebody goes, how do you feel? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Amazing. This guy was such oh. a badass. I loved every second that he was on screen. He was so just compelling like just to look at yeah. he had such a presence yeah gelt yeah. rules gelt gelt just uh every time every time rubber Vaud came on uh and then of course uh spoiler alert his ending which was very unfortunate um you know he 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 dies uh by crashing into the planet Oh, it was such uh, a badass moment too, yeah. And then he has this, this death scene, this epic death scene, which is only destroyed by the fact that he, to see that he's dying, they just covered his face with with Smucker's strawberry jam. Mm-hmm. So, uh, oh. Um, but, his, but when he's like getting shot, when he gets shot and he's like spinning out and everything in the ship is malfunctioning, he's just like, he's just like, it's been a fun battle, um, but I'm afraid I... I might not be making it back. Like he's just very nonchalant, very casual about it. Like never loses his cool for a second. I never. loved Gil. Never. Oh. Speaking of those deaths, um, which, you know, spoiler territory, obviously for the listeners out there, but 
and with any movie inspired by the Seven Samurai or the Magnificent Seven, you know, not not every hero or anti-hero is going to make it through. But I don't know. I, I had a big problem with kind of the last 40 minutes of the movie. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. One, the editing and um, like shot structure of the battle. I had just it was very hard for me to understand where <laughs> ships were in relation yeah. to the planet. Yeah. But two, I felt like a lot of the heroes didn't get a payoff. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them just like rushed blindly into battle and were shot down, and, and that was sort of it. And I know that's just a feature of war. Yeah. But apart from like Valkyrie, who had a very mm. had, had a clear clear arc and Saint ending Axman. that was kind of poetic, um, right? Like uh, just the um, hold on one sec. The uh, yeah, Saint Exum, right? I thought uh, Cayman. I was like hoping for something else there, some resolution yeah. or yeah, some. He- bookend book to that arc yeah he came and just screams lazul and dies it's like <laughs> why did you scream lazul at the top of your lungs like shrieking and then he just dies it was i was really hoping he'd have some face-to-face with sador who clearly yeah. who, who exterminated every every member of the lazuli race except for him um or some kind of i feel like a lot of the heroes died without having an effect on the battle which um, yeah yeah and then space which kind cowboy, of bummed me out space cowboy of course crashing as well you know uh it's it's just yeah the, and then at the end the ultimate ending um after the resolution they save the day you know it just abruptly ends they have this quick conversation I did not like that cut to the credits yeah cut it was very credits. abrupt mm-hmm. very abrupt and i i think I, there's a lot of a lot of the space battle confusion is they might have had to fill time for what they were selling. Like, so Roger Corman says, I got a movie to fill these theaters. You know, uh, it's this many minutes, you know, and and the runtime yeah. is very much dependent on how many space shots they put in there at the end. Um, and they probably, to be honest, they probably didn't have many uh, yeah. shots with actors that they could really fill uh, for that runtime. Uh, you're absolutely right. The, the There's really not very good, conclusion that the the denouement of this movie is just is just yeah it falls apart it it does fizzle at that that is one place where the budget is like a huge detriment to it because yeah they're reusing shots of the same same two ships flying by the same two ships getting shot same two ships blasting green lasers out of them or whatever like and yeah there wasn't um, something that's that Star Wars gets gets a lot of credit for, but it's a lot. A lot of movies have figured this out and done this sort of like multi-point climax battle where you have the you have the troops on the ground fighting each other, you have the the spaceships or the ships in the air fighting each other, and then you have the 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 main hero and the main villain like having a more direct one-on-one fight, and all of this is happening simultaneously, and you're and it's giving you the full scope of everything going on. This was just like this just sort of turned into like a ship to ship battle, and there wasn't that con that cool confrontation moment. There wasn't that you know um, yeah. when we last met, you were the teacher, and I was right. There students. wasn't a climax. There wasn't a proper climax where they resolve the issues. Uh, the, the the ending of the film it could have had a nice button on it where you know Shad uh, was you know paying tribute to those that have died in this great battle, you know, mm-hmm. and, and just talked about, you know, the nest. Like he does for Gelt, like with right. Gelt, it's, it's yep. a beautiful moment, but yeah, there should have been a little like, more. Yeah, than that. Cause every single one of them just dies. They just, they just, they go. Um, can we talk just briefly about, um, Sador's affinity with stealing body parts? 
yes, please, because I need somebody to explain that to me. <laughs> so uh, we have Nestor, one of the Nestors captured toward the end of the movie and Sador is going to torture him to find out where these rebels are, you know, if you, if you will. It's very much uh, anonymous to Star Wars. Uh, they have a, a doctor who's uh, very, very uh, talented at inflicting pain come. And we, we are told that the Nestor don't experience pain. Um, and and um, this, uh, this, of course, results in one of the Nestor being killed and Sador like taking his arm. He's like, I want that arm and replacing his yeah. own arm. I, we don't know why, why does he want to do this, but we can see that the, he has three fingers. Now they did the clever thing of taping his fingers into making like two fingers into one. And now he has a three fingers. And unfortunately he can't control the Nestor arm. The Nestor arm is still part of the Nestor consciousness uh, and tries to, tries to cut his throat. Tries to slash that is a cool scene. Like, you know, I like the, the like I like the, the concept. Um, it was hilarious. Um, the science behind that, or and then and then eventually mm -hmm. he just orders his minions to just cut the arm off to remove the arm. Yeah. And for the rest of the movie, he's armless. He's got one arm. So what yeah. happened to his original arm? Why did he have to remove that to put this other arm in it? Is it is he dying of some reason, or is he? I mean, is he is he that type of species where he's like a zombie and he just you know, needs to constantly replace his parts. I wrote down at the, at the end, he like laments, I want to live forever. And I'm like, wait, where, why? I guess that was the reason for replacing body parts or something, but like that wasn't really set up. Like that wasn't set up. I like, I have to, I have to extrapolate from that line and from the fact that he was stealing an arm from the Nestor that that's his motivation. But I really didn't, yeah. I didn't watch the movie twice. So I don't know, maybe I missed something. Right. I, yeah. I can, so- after, after having watched it again this morning, I did notice. So I think it's a, it's underdeveloped, whatever, regardless, right? But um, Sador, we see him throughout the movie up until that surgery scene. He's got his right arm is intact, but it's kind of hanging limply on like on his side or, or like against his 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 chest. So I assume huh, that okay. arm is is damaged somehow, or and I do assume that his body is deteriorating or something like that. Be, there's another scene early on when Sador leaves for a week for, for reasons. And for seven risings. Behind. I, like, I like the phrasing of that too. I'm, I like I will return too. To seven risings. <laughs> you are mine. Um, which is a great villain line. He mm. leaves behind a scout ship filled with two really um, unsavory mutants. And <laughs> um, when, when uh, Shad leaves the planet in the Nell ship, they chase him briefly and then they just, and then they want to keep chasing him. One of the mutants does. And, and the other mutant says, we have orders to, to guard the planet. And the other mutant says, Oh, screw orders. And the second mutant says, do you remember Lobo? He disobeyed orders. Mm. And now, um, and now Sador is wearing his left foot or something like that. Right. So that throwaway line. So clearly he's replacing okay. body parts, maybe out of, a sadism, maybe out of necessity. I don't know, but there's something going on there. In any event, it's definitely underdeveloped. Yeah, good. That's a good catch with the. I had, the I had a two big question about that Lodo Lobo line initially. Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> I was like, oh, what, yeah. <laughs> what? Who is Lobo, and why does he have his foot? Um, but yeah, <laughs> the uh, the two unsavory uh, minions 
of of Seder that 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 look like they have a, a cleft in their face. They just they like this this deep yeah. gash cla- chasm in their face. Most of his crew had something like that. Yeah, it's 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 a very interesting uh, costume or visual choice uh, to have like a very very deep off putting. Uh, like break in someone's face. It like looks like 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 someone had um, split open an orange or yeah or or something along those lines. Yeah, the way the the fact that it was like almost all of his crew had some type of scar like that. They were clearly doing something with it or implying something with it, but it never really got explored. Um, but who knows? Uh, maybe this movie's operating on a whole other level of subtlety that we're just not. <laughs> we're, 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 we're missing. <laughs> um, I did like the, uh, or I wrote, I wrote down every time they mentioned the Varda, I was trying to get a sense mm. of like um, the, the, the total philosophy. So I'm going to, I'm going to read off to you guys what uh, like the times that the Varda gets invoked and what the, what the tenants of the Varda seem to be. And let me know if, I, if you caught any that I missed. So the first time um, Nell and uh, Shad are having an argument about like, uh, when they're trying to run away from the other ship with the two um, unsavory henchmen, at one point Nell is like, "We gotta, you know, we gotta try to shoot them back. We gotta um, fire at them." And he's like, "No, the Varda says we can't." And it's actually the, a cool moment where she breaks protocol and just fires her weapons without his input, and he gets upset about that. And he's like, "You fired without me." Anyway, she mentions at one point, um, "The Varda says you can take life to save life." Yep. Um, Later, she says, and this comes up a couple times in the movie, and it's part of the, like the grand resolution: use greater strength against itself. Um, and then, <laughs> if it doesn't hurt you, don't worry about it. Apparently, apparently, is one of the tenets of the Varda: uh, trust first, judge later. And then I save my favorite one for last because I like the phrasing of this: swift rain is little rain. I like yeah, that. That I remember that line um, when. Shad was kind of rebuking St. Exum. Yep. Um, but that was, I felt it was a throwaway line, but also like it speaks to your point, Lou, about the world building. The the Varda feels like, even though, like, what did you identify? Four tenets? It felt mm-hmm. like a fully realized philosophy. It made sense in the context of the movie. And it's not this like peaceful, like, you know, death is always unacceptable or like no, no violence whatsoever. Um, tenant or philosophy, it's, it's more of a philosophy of self-defense. It's very similar to like most, um, you know, uh, martial arts philosophies. Like you, you, you learn this so that you are, you're able to defend yourself, but you shouldn't provoke, you shouldn't initiate conflict seems to be the overall message of it. What do you guys think? Yeah, so uh, they they referenced the first law of the Varda. What was that? That was uh I believe that one must be use greater strength against itself because that's the one that came up multiple times. Right, that's right. Yeah, use greater strength in yourself. And they they reference that a, a lot. And it, it it's a base philosophy. So it garners their decisions, but they reference it all the time. The question mm-hmm. I have is, you know, ultimately break that philosophy to save themselves. Uh, but Zed's ship, uh, she, she, I'm using she cause it's a female voice. Uh, she takes over the ship and starts killing uh, and blowing up the, the, the smaller ships. Um, why doesn't, 
why doesn't she do that all the time? I don't understand yeah. <laughs> why they even need a pilot uh, that's even following Varda Law. You know, um, apparently he's a great pilot. Um, his sister says so in the beginning, but he's never been on this ship. He's never been all around the, the galaxy. I don't understand why he's so good. And he he can't even do things like, use their guns to, to mm-hmm. destroy other ships. He, at one point he, uh, he's conflicted by the rules of the Varda. He can't shoot them in the back. He has to shoot right. them fra- face on. Uh, and um, finally, you know, uh, the ship Nell uh, destroys the ship in front of him because he's hesitating and, and ultimately saves them by doing so. Um, and that, that's what, you know, he had a big problem with it, how it was um, kind of cowardly if to shoot someone in the back. Mm-hmm. Oh, that actually, Jason, you just reminded me of another Varda rule, which was something like that which is me- mechanical should not override that which is organic or something like that. Yeah, Doesn't he quote yeah, that to, that's right. to Nell? It's like a law of robotics. Yeah. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, Varda law of robotics. I, I will say, I'm glad you brought up the Varda because I love I love the world building of it. I will say I wish I wish Shad had a greater conflict with it because so there's that moment when they're trying to save the space cowboy. Where not Han Solo, refu- by the way. Not, <laughs> not at all Han Solo. Um, and that's George Pappard. And he, re- <laughs> he he doesn't want to fight. And then Nell says, you know, the Varda says you can, uh, you can take a life to save life, right? Mm-hmm. And so he reluctantly, I think, ultimately, she, she takes out maybe the first one. He reluctantly takes care of the rest. And he's kind of conflicted about it. And then St. Exum shows up a few minutes later and kind of toys around with him. And he's like, let me at her. Let me at her. He wants to fight her. (laughs) And it just, it did right. It didn't seem like, obviously in a space opera like this, you can't have a character like fighting with himself throughout the whole movie about, do I take a life? Do I not? But it felt resolved a little too easily. Maybe. I don't know. It's a minor complaint in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Can we talk about space cowboy a little bit? Like, well, what's his deal? Yeah, we haven't mentioned his belt yet. <laughs> Let's talk about everything about Space Cowboy. Oh. So Space Cowboy is from Earth. Mm-hmm. He from is Texas. An, an Earthling from Texas um, in the future, I guess. And he knows a lot about Earth culture because on he's, he's a long hauler hauling weapons. Um, that's how Shad encounters him. Um, he's delivering weapons to his planet, which eventually gets destroyed. Um, starified, turns into a star. Sparkled uh, and out. sparkled out. Um, he's, he has all these weapons here that we're supposed to take and have delivered, and, and now they have no place to go. So Shad's like, "Why don't we just buy them?" And and then he convinced Shad convinces him to join them as well. Uh, he knows a lot about Earth culture because he watches old westerns apparently on his on his ship, his long haul yep. ship. He has them all memorized. He's got the ones that he wants to show Shad. He's like thinks yeah. it's the best thing in the world. Um, his ship has the Confederate flag on it. I'm not sure if you noticed Which is that. Problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Problematic. Um, <laughs> and he seems like he's always drunk. So the character, he, the character Space Cowboy, it's, it's very much, I think, what, what seems kind of unusual. He's trying to do a John Wayne impression. So mm. it's kind of that casual cowboy, reluctant to do anything with a swagger. Um, not, not, not the typical, you know, cowboy, just, one that's always kind of haggard and tired. Uh, but he seems like he's always drunk, whether he's sleeping uh, or dispensing beverages from his belt. Mm-hmm. Um, Along with like ice. To, 
Would, would anyone like to talk about his yeah. belt? How does it work? I, I just need to know how <laughs> I need the, okay. So he has a belt that he presses one button to dispense scotch. And then the next button dispenses carbonated water, which that's already bringing a lot of logistical problems into the whole thing. But then the last button dispenses a block of ice into it. A few cubes. And few cubes yeah. I can, okay. I can buy, <laughs> obviously it's all space technology, but like I have to wrap my mind around you, you created, you, you created like tiny technology that, that compresses air on your belt um, and makes <laughs> seltzer fine. But then, but then right next to it is technology that freezes water uh, and, and dispenses it. Well, we have to understand. So I can always spend so much disbelief. What is the need of having a, a belt scotch and soda dispenser? What is that? need? <laughs> now, m- this is the only rationalization I can have of it. Okay. So, uh, Belt buckles are big. They're not only big in size, they're they're very showboaty. If you if uh-huh. you're from Texas, you have a big ornate metal belt buckle. And I think this is supposed to be the spaciest of belt buckles, like the highest of technologies of belt buckles. Like what can we do <laughs> to make this the most Texas space belt buckle? Well, we're going to make it scotch and soda. And it's it's not only uh, beautiful to look at, but also practical. And when I say mm-hmm. beautiful to look at, it looks like he's peeing into a glass wherever <laughs> he just senses it. <laughs> in fact, the, the later on scene where he only dispenses scotch yep. and doesn't and omits the soda and ice, <laughs> uh, it's all blurry. And it looks like he's peeing into a cup. Like they did mm. not focus that appropriately, that scene. It, it's definitely preposterous from a technological point of view, but I will say that that clunk of the ice is probably got the biggest <laughs> laugh out of me when I watched mm-hmm. it. Um, it's just a great punchline, physical auditory, uh, just totally absurd. And just, and I, I think this is a perfect segue to talk about my favorite scene, which is around that same time. So uh, uh, everyone, uh, Shad and team have returned to Akira and everyone's getting to know each other. You know, space cowboy falls for a local Akira woman and mm-hmm. um, everyone's learning each other's, different customs. And it's a great time. In fact, I wish they could have deleted 20 minutes from the space battle after that and added it to this time because this was my favorite part of the movie. Mm -hmm. And there is a scene which is whoever staged this, whoever thought of this, I hope they got a raise because um, it's like this slowly panning from left to right. And it's a, it's a kind of a campfire scene. Um, Space Cowboys there with his Akira love interest playing the harmonica uh, there, um, he's got some Frankfurters there over the quote unquote fire and, um, the Lazuli, um, who's Cayman Cayman is kind of warming his reptilian dinosaur hands (laughs) over the fire, but the fire is the two Kelvin sitting back to back radiating heat because that's how they communicate in heat. And it's such a brilliant visual of him, like warming his hands over the fire and they're all (laughs) sitting around with the harmonica. And I'm like, this this is that B movie schlocky perfection that you're looking for, and I just love that scene. Oh, the absurdity of it is so brilliant! It's great. <laughs> I mean, I, I was like, I'm writing things out. There's a space harmonica. There's space hot. <laughs> there's a space campfire made of Kelvin. Oh my gosh! And then with one a, of, it, oh boy, it was a, I thought a really good way to like visually bring together all of the elements, all of the different disparaging or disparate. Uh, disparate um, cultures and aliens and everything into one 
into one location for a common goal. And it did it, like that one shot did a way better job of communicating all that better than the entire 20 minute uh, space battle scene. Yeah. And, and this is what, like, they're very much using seven samurai, a magnificent seven moment, you know, them out yeah. in, the, in the, in the prairie or them out in the, in the wilderness, you know, around the campfire before the big battle, you know, that's, that's very much uh, uh, a parody of that. Uh, but they have that beautiful, was it the Robert Vaughn conversation where I guess uh, they ask him how he feels and he says, I don't. I don't. And then he says, were you bad? One of the kids came over to him. They're they approach Robert Vaughn's character. Mm. And one of the kids comes over and says, were you bad when you were little? And then he says, I was never that little. It's I love that line. Great <laughs> freaking line. Oh, oh he's got Dude, all the best. Such lines. a badass. Oh. The scene prior, right before they have that, that campfire scene, um, uh, two, a little about two scenes prior, right? So St. X-Men's talking to, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Nanelia. Nanelia about sex. And uh-huh. they're trying to figure out like, what is sex? I've never understood sex. So she knows it very much as a technical thing, like, mm-hmm. a, like a scientific study. But St. X-Men has this hilarious line, uh-huh. you know, Pringle, Dingle, Dangle, you know, his <laughs> transistors. It's you know, sex. <laughs> oh. They they also do a little bit of world building in that conversation too, because they're like, um, she says, you know, some she explains that it's about procreation, right. and and this might have been a different conversation, but Nanelia says like only two sexes uh, on Bylanda it takes three, and then on this other planet, blah blah blah, and then gets interrupted. Um, but I thought that was also like interesting and progressive and. Yeah, it's like, oh, thank God it's only two. Okay, okay, I'll be okay. <laughs> but it, the, it oh, is, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Jason. The actor that, that plays St. X-Men, uh, she is a B-movie staple, apparently. She's in, been in every single major Roger Corman film and a few others. Um, so she's, I guess, one of those well-recognized actors, and that's a, pro- probably the reason why they gave her a very scantily clad outfit with a very ornate headdress yeah. that looks like <laughs> like, like uh, Thor or Birdman or something like that. She's got these kind of... Uh, um, like she's walked off of the set of uh, Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, uh, she was committed though. She committed to the role. Like she, she did, and yeah. and every shot of her in her ship, she's always laying down. I didn't understand. What was the deal with that? I I don't know. She was other other than like to show off her body in that position. <laughs> like, what is the practicality of piloting a ship from that position? <laughs> like laying laying supine. Well, doesn't doesn't Boba Fett's ship in Slave One like that at times? Then it rotates up and it moves. Fair, but but he's never actually laying down. He's always standing. I think technically because there's no up and down in space. Okay. Let me. Uh, speaking of, it's Saint, is it Saint X Men or X Men? Saint X Men. X Men. Yeah. Were either of you surprised how? Um, how this movie was not very exploitative, like uh, because of Corman's involvement, apart from St. X-Men, who was, you know, half naked half the time and kind of, you know, inserted herself into the shot with her buttocks, you know, like facing the camera several right, times. Right. And apart from the ship, which has breasts, um, it was, it really didn't exploit that area um, they, as much as I expected it to. I was yeah, expecting it to be a lot, a lot more base. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I think after after seeing a few Corman films, you know, you're going to see nudity at times. You're going to see violence. You're going to see language, and they get that hard 
uh, it wasn't R at the time. I think it was, it was just still PG or PG. They didn't think they have PG 13 at the time, but, but you get that, that higher rating. Um, cause you're, you're showing the movies at a different time of day. You know, you're, you're doing it, you know, either in the middle of the day, these really tiny theaters or late, 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 late at night. Uh, and for Corman, for this movie, I think this is him trying really, really trying to make it more mainstream, like trying to bring it to a broader audience. The only scene, unfortunately, as, as you maybe kind of touched on, is those two unsavory minions um, where they take a concubine. Uh, and we have, of course, she she's being assaulted in the background. Um, it was definitely the scene. darkest point of the movie. We, yeah. It was so out of place. It we was. didn't need that scene. I like that she gets sort of revenge, though. Like her her arc at the end is then is uh, they're getting fired upon by the other by the good guys, and she like runs up and and interferes with them to so they can't like defend themselves or get away. Yeah, um, that, that's very revenge exploitation film, Roger Corman in itself. Like that's this entire subgenre of B movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that makes sense in that exploitation sense. Yeah. It's, yeah, I, I was definitely expecting it to be raunchier. Um, especially like this, the first moment that I saw the design of the ship and it's clearly, clearly <laughs> meant to be boobs and like the, like the front windows on it or whatever, the front panels are, are clearly nipples. I was like, oh man, like every ship is going to be like really phallic and, um, and, and flagrantly. And, and we're going to get a lot of, uh, just crassness. I was worried that it would be a lot more crass than it was. And yeah, with the exception of Val, the St. X-Men, there really wasn't that much exploitation. I mean, there was, but like not as not nearly to the degree I was expecting. Yeah. Maybe he was trying to hit a time frame or hit a, a level of exploitation that a level of, of edginess that he can put it on television or something along those lines. Like it could yeah. be a, like a movie of the week or, or something that can be sold or resold onto like new pl- programs like HBO. Cause HBO had just come out big was well, been out for a few years, but it was just, you know, really blowing up as cable exploded around that time. Yep. Do y'all so, have, okay, good. Can we, what was the plan of the Akir? Like I didn't understand how they were going to protect the planet other than the ships battling up above there was a moment where they make trenches on the planet and they decide Mm -hmm. to have trench warfare i didn't understand how that was going to protect them from a massive space laser that turned them into a sun well they that's the the like during that sequence they roll out this cool um at least a cool idea for this sonic tank that Mm. goes around like and and this was obviously a budget thing, <laughs> like because uh, so, it saves them from having to do any special effects of it blasting anything out of its howitzer and blowing anything up. So it just emits a frequency that messes with everybody, um, except for the Kelvin because they are uh, immune to sound for or something or they're deaf. I don't know. Oh yeah, that, no ears. I I did love no that ears. that that whole trench warfare while a little. Again, like the space battle, hard to follow and know where everyone is in relation to each other. Um, the Kelvin becoming unexpected heroes on that mm-hmm. was a fun little moment. There was also a very funny moment where um, uh, Cowboy is like, oh, it's time to do the rock slide or whatever. And they're like, the rock slide. And then he like goes off and then he comes back a few minutes later and they're like, what about the rock slide? And he's like, it didn't work. And it was clearly like, <laughs> 
were we supposed to see that not work or, or was that just supposed to be like a, oh, we're going to talk about it, something that happened off screen because we don't have the budget to show it to you. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah. He comes back with this massive space Zippo lighter. I remember I wrote down when he has the scotch and ice on his, on his seat, on his belt. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's when he has the drink there. But the, um, the Kelvin, yeah. the Kelvin's names were Urim and Thunim. And uh, yeah, they have a very interesting death as well. I'm trying to remember what they did. I thought they died. They actually don't. They they end up okay. Um, because I they, remember when they yeah. when they go up against the tank and like overheat it, they they fall to the ground. And I thought they were dead. But then somebody's like, uh, get them to medical. Get them to That's emergency it. care. Yeah, yeah. They do this the Care Bear stare, and <laughs> they just stand there and uh, they they emit this beam from them. Yeah, that's what that happened. And the bad guys all die and blow up the tanks. That's right, the sonic tanks. No, they call them two different things. They call them sonar tanks and they call them sonic tanks. They actually use both words when describing these things. I wrote it down because I rewound it to try to hear it. But first they say sonic tank, then they say sonar tank, and then they say sonic <laughs> tank. Yeah. It causes you to get blood from your ears. That's what it causes. And they're really noisy. And then the bad guys, of course, they can stand in front of the tank and have a problem, but everyone else gets bloody ears well yeah they're mutants of some kind right <laughs> uh awesome do y'all have anything more to say about this movie before we move on to lose big three yeah can we talk about the pleasure planet uh yes N- nascosto yeah the city under the surface yeah um the let me pull up my notes here the pleasure planet because it had it that was... dial-a-date moment right so yeah Speaking uh, of that's that okay, that's like that was a moment of exploitation for sure. <laughs> yeah, let me pull I forgot notes. about that. Oh, that that the pleasure planet, we owe you it's this abandoned uh world where he where he is, Robert Vaughn's character is, and there's what what turns up to be first it says I think it says dial a drug. Mm-hmm. In, yep. in like neon writing, and Shad almost, and he almost eats, eats it. it. He almost eats it. So it dispenses, which is pill. very out of character. He I don't know what that eats was about. The dial a drug, um, and then it says dial a date, and it brings up the images of of women, um, and then he selects one of the women, and a panel opens up, and it's kind of this almost corpse zombified, yeah, like mummified, woman. and but she's still active and alive, I guess, or moving. Um, yeah, I didn't. I did not quite understand what was going on with it. One thing I appreciated was that the dial a date sign itself was like a neon, and it was in three languages, like two of which were clearly like alien languages. So I appreciated that little bit of set design. But yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't really get whether this was like a demolition man kind of thing, or like they did a similar scene in Logan's Run. Mm. Um, where are you interfacing? Was Shad interfacing with real women? And it was a hologram, or was it like they are actually inside of this machine, and that's why the last one had been mummified because she was inside it so long she starved to death. Yeah, and and Robert Vaughn's character calls them lesser forms, uh, lower forms, but he shoot. But Robert Vaughn shoots from the hip there, you know, when he comes close, right from the right from the chair. He's standing mm-hmm. in this throne room on this planet, surrounded by gold and jewels. Uh, holding a gun at while still sitting at the throne and in yeah, Scrooge McDucking. It. It's yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's yeah, he's Scrooge McDucking on this planet. 
but his his go his his role apparently in history was he was a gun for hire an assassin yep. mm-hmm. and he left and then came back to the planet um you know trying to hide going where no one wants to go what does he say like i i sleep with my back to a wall yep made a lot of enemies so cool. The, the only, I fucking love the, guns. Yeah, great character. You guys, uh, the only, so cool, you guys. <laughs> the only thing I would add uh, before moving on to the, the three questions is I um, wanted to give a call out to Earl Bowen. I looked up the cast list afterwards. Earl Bowen plays the main nester, like the spoke, <sighs> spokesperson of the nester. Yeah. Um, everyone will probably remember him as the psychiatrist uh, from Terminator and Terminator 2. You know, the Dr. one who... Silverman. Yeah. Uh, I found out he... Did, he, he uh, uh, he is now the late great Earl Bowen because I found out he passed away just last month. Oh but no! He, um, love him from Terminator, and I thought he was really charismatic in that kind of monotone Nestor way. Uh, so I just wanted to give throw throw out to him that I really enjoyed his performance, especially the hot dog scene. Yeah, yeah, him and all his facets—they're not clones; they're facets. Facets. Oh yeah, that's yeah. There were a couple of like things like that, like little bits of like terminology or just used like just how they would have one word that you know was like slightly different than what you'd expect them to say, like forms or these are different. All the facets of us. Um, that yeah, it, and, or the risings. And, I will return in seven risings. Like that really, really worked all, all of a piece. And they have they they're brought into the entire battle and war not for any particular reason, but they're worried of becoming quote unquote bored to death. Yep. <laughs> like they, they, they have their own consciousness. It's just themselves. It's, it, it was just themselves. They're kind of like the Borg collective consciousness in that in Star Trek, but they're worried yeah. of becoming bored to death. And that's why they're doing this. Yeah, that was, so that was their motive. The Nestor's motivation was that um, came in. It was a personal revenge because like he had, Seder had killed all of his people uh, Valkyrie, it was just the glory of, of battle. The fun, the fun um, glory. For Cowboy, oh, I remember what it was for Cowboy. It was that not Alderaan uh, had gotten blown, Umatil had gotten blown up <laughs> by the Stellar Converter, um, and they were his client, and he was shipping weapons to them in the first place, but since they were blown up, he was like, well, they already paid for it, so I might as well deliver it to someone else who can use it. Right, right. Yeah, it was sort of like a Wookiee life debt kind of situation since Shad saved his life. I, I love the yeah. point where this, they're called oh, they're called Zymers, is that right? The group of, of everyone, you know, the Calvin, Cayman, Cayman's crew. Cayman's crew. The Cayman's Yeah, Zymer, Zymers. Zymers. And uh with Quopeg the Kunar, who's the most just Yeah, t- a Zyme, toss away character. A Zyme is something that's going to uh like an enzyme. And it's going to digest the girl at one point. That's the nickname. And they it was very them, Star Trekky. Yeah, they're yeah, calling they're calling the from. group Zymers. They cook down the enzymes for their protein and food. So the Zymers are people that eat the zymes, the enzymes. Uh, the Kelvin and his crew. Um, I wish we could have seen a zyme. Yeah, it's like talking about them. There were a lot of aliens and things that they like mentioned and they described that like, I was like, okay, cool. I don't need to see that. Cause you described it in such a good way. The yeah. Zyme, I would have liked to see it. And they initially called the consider the, the, the Zyme as being like jackers in the zone, the Lambda zone. Um, jackers being the slang for hijackers. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're trying to be clever with naming things to make it sound kind of interesting. Uh, like they're dropping parts of words 
but the Zymers are the jackers. <laughs> the jack, the Zymers eat <laughs> the Zymes, and the Zymers are made up of Cayman, the Kelvin, uh, and who else in that crew? A Quopeg the Kunar. Yes, and if you, could tell, if you could yeah, if you could tell me two things about Kopeg the Kunar. Kopeg, I'll give you hundred dollars. Kopeg is a Kunar. He's a guy with a staff. He doesn't. He say throws much. a staff or a spear. Yeah, he impales a, a couple of mutants at the end. He does actually. He does get that one cool moment where he like impales two at one with one spear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was pretty badass. But yeah, in describing in in describing the the plight, um, Shad rolls a nat twenty and convinces <laughs> convinces Cayman to just join the group and persuades you. He just says, "Yeah, we got this guy." We, th- we got we got this guy uh he's he's trying to kill everyone um uh, what's his name um Seder. Seder, yeah he just mentioned Seder. He's like Seder, did you say Seder? i'm in like it didn't take much convincing at all mm-hmm. there really isn't anything about this film that's not cut and dry except for the names because you have to wait for them they don't and they don't greet characters with names like when the movies first started for the first few scenes like i would wait who is zed who is Shad? Who are who are the um, uh, the philosophy? Uh, like what what is what is going on here, and what are their names? And and you have to like go back. It's like oh, that's his name. Oh, that's who Zed is. You know. Oh, that's who Shad is. Um, but yeah, it's 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 not built with introductions. Yeah, proper introductions. You're kind of like being brought into conversations. Uh, and then you learn when they casually reference someone's name, who they are, which makes you think that they might have cut some scenes, um, especially in the beginning. Um, which I'd planet. be surprised to learn that they cut anything from this movie because it well, seemed like they were working hard to stretch it out to an hour forty. <laughs> yeah, and, and Zed as a blind uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi character seemed to get around quite well. Mm-hmm. He, he seemed to move around okay. He seemed to battle quite well. Uh, he he dies at some point in the movie, right? He does. He gets stabbed by one of one of the bad guys. Uh, is it during the climax, or is it during? Is it earlier than that? No, it's during. It's during, during the major that trench battle. battle. Trench Why battle. he was there, a blind man, I can't tell you. <laughs> at, at at the front line, but he was. <laughs> Listen, you don't tell Zed in his years and years of experience as being a space, uh, um, a space uh, ship uh, flying. Uh, how wait, how did he fly the ship if he's blind? Wait. So Nell must have flown that ship the whole entire time. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, he might have become blind in his later years or at the result <laughs> of a battle or something like that. You guys, I think we may have found the one plot hole in this movie. <laughs> did did you guys remember the, the one scene where they stabbed the guy in the chest and a green came out? Do you remember that scene? Oh yeah, that was actually pretty dope. I, li- yeah. I liked little things like that. I liked the, like... But there's no blood of the aliens. There's green blood that came yeah. out. Yeah. Like this massive amount of green blood that exploded everywhere. Oh, and uh, the other thing we have to talk about is James Horner. James Horner? Yes. He did the music? The, sco- the score was actually surprisingly good. James Horner, who's very well known now, and he's written Academy... I think he's... I'm sure he's won Academy Awards, but definitely Academy nom- Award nominations for his scores. Um big name in Hollywood scores. Uh, this is one of his first big productions and uh, he absolutely does a good job of ripping off Star Wars. So you can definitely yeah. hear um, a lot of the similar themes. Um, like the, the whole entire asteroid scene, 
uh, when they're biting, fighting asteroids in Star Wars, he parries that frequently. And of course, the overture at times. There's even like a throne room, almost Darth Vader type scene, uh, um, song. I think that happens uh, or theme that happens during the the the, the movie here. But yeah, James Horner um, showing up as being this no-name composer and making a name for himself. I just looked this up just now. Do you know what else uh, James Horner recently did the music for? Oh, he's done so much. Did you do Avatar? It, Avatar The Way of Water. Yeah. Another direct connection to, to this. So that he, must I have... think he won, the, he won the Oscar for Titanic. So he's worked with Cameron That's for, right. on a, on a few movies. Yeah. 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 Huh. Okay. That's where it all began. Incidentally, he also did uh, an American Tale. He did. Uh, I liked uh, Air Force One. I think he did that as well. Nice. There are no oh, that was Jerry, cats Jerry in America. That was Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah. Uh, cool. Are you all ready to do Lose Big Three? Yes. Very ready. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, Evan, this is, your, this is your first time on Robots vs. Dinosaurs, but this is the section of the podcast that we call Lose Big Three. And uh, there's going to be a theme song that you'll hear if you listen to the episode later, sung by one Ryan Lawler. So, Ryan, hit the hey. theme. Lose Big Three, it's you and me. We're going to have fun with Lose Big Three. Thank you, Ryan. That was fantastic. Oh, my gosh. What, Evan, wasn't that amazing? I loved it. um all right lose big three number one (laughs) what movies uh what space movies did this not rip off that it should have battle beyond the stars by the way (laughs) is the movie i'm talking about that ripped (laughs) off other movies uh i can take a a a swing at that one Mm, so the, the first big space movie that it didn't rip off was alien um, mm-hmm. we don't have, you know, a big alien that's preying on people, um, in this, in this film. That's, that's definitely not a thing here. Mm. Yeah. And again, that's why I would have liked to see a Zyme. Like apparently the Zyme is like a big alien that eats things. So, uh, and then, uh, the other, uh, space movie that this wouldn't be, uh, ripping off would be the space maroon movie. With the fact that you have a bunch of astronauts that are marooned on a planet and they have to do what they can to get off the planet. Mm. Kind of lost in space theme. Um, like Forbidden Planet, remember that movie which you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think of any other space movies that are general th- genres of space movies. Hmm. Well, yeah, that, to, to be fair, space movies aren't the only thing Battle Beyond the Stars is ripping off. So you can you can mention other movies because it, it borrows heavily from... Uh, from like fantasy swords and sandals movies too. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It's got like a, because of the different races and different elements, it's definitely got a fantasy. I I was about to say it rips off Conan the Barbarian, but Conan came out two years later. So I think we may have discovered here today, Conan the Barbarian ripped off battle beyond the stars. Yeah. And that we discussed. (laughs) You heard it here first folks. Yeah. (laughs) Call the conqueror Conan the Barbarian, all these sci-fi space fantasy uh, genre films. This is mm. this is uh, this is along the lines of of um, like Flash Gordon mm. um, in terms of fantasy space opera. So, what was it in the culture in 1980 that like all of these movies um, had came out with all the very similar themes and and um, 
well, aliens were cool, you know. Everyone's cashing <laughs> in on space and aliens. We had ET. Uh, we had Star Trek was coming out. Um, Star Wars. Um, you know, all these, all these, what were counterculture? Um, uh, uh, what they were? They're they're small little you know, sci-fi movies that were only shown, shown in, in like really cheap cinemas in the, in the sixties and fifties or comic books and comic book serials, um, you know, now being mainstream, big budget movies, those that were growing up on reading these or, or watching these TV or films, you know, now can make, make what they remember. And that was like where George Lucas, for example, the big inspiration for him making star Wars, he, he remembered, um, what was it? Was it Buck Rogers? No, it wasn't. It was Flash Gordon, the Flash Gordon series as his youth. And he wanted to recreate that um, with, with homage to Akira Kurosawa. Um, mm. and, and that's basically what we have here. A lot of these uh, producers and whatnot. But for this movie, it's just a cash cow. It's just a wonderful yeah. cash cow. I, th- I think they were chasing the money, right? It was three years after Star Wars, which had, you know, along with Jaws, was the one-two punch that changed you know, the American blockbuster forever. And, and there were a lot of kind of uh, copycats right after that, right? And one year later, 1978 was this truly awful movie called Laser Blast, which I saw via <laughs> Mystery Science Theater 3000, but which has aliens coming to earth and this ne'er-do-well getting some laser cannon for an arm. But um, there's, a, I, there's a scene in that movie where they're driving down the highway and there is a billboard that says Star Wars and the main character shoots a laser blast through the billboard <laughs> to demonstrate how much greater it is. So I think it was just the climate at the time. It was like, this movie made money. Let's literally cobble together some money and make our clone and it'll get some dollars. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I think this movie was a fine, I mean, it wasn't a, a runaway success, but I think this made its money back and did okay, despite critical, the critical consensus being mixed. Let's see. I did not crunch the numbers, but you're right. The, the Close Encounters of the Third Kind, I think had just come out, was that 79 or was that 80? Um, but they're all in production at the same time. Look it up real quick. Battle, Beyond the Stars, Box Alien, Alien came out and was it 78? 77 I'm trying, so there's there's these uh it was a big success uh the budget was two million uh this is battle beyond the stars budget was two million the box office was 11 million so that's re- that's a really good turnaround for a corman movie at that time too that is huge you know mm-hmm. um people came out to see this and unfortunately they they were disappointed <laughs> Well, to, to go back to Lou's point from earlier um, in this conversation, and it's not that bad, you know. It's uh, it's watchable. It's I watched it twice now, and you know, it's it's um, I it's, could see that I could see how it's developed a bit of a cult following. You know, it's 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 got it's got it's got moments there. It's got mm-hmm. elements. It's, it's got just kernels. enough movie to get you to like it and enjoy it. It's just enough. It's not. It's not. I don't see anything that makes me hate this movie. You know, like there's yeah. movies, like when we watched uh, when we watched um, uh, what was that that awful movie that we reviewed, Lou? Uh, ice the ice um, ice pirates. Ice pirates. I'm not gonna watch that movie again. No, not not no. You couldn't pay Never. me to. <laughs> but I will absolutely sit through you know, Battle Beyond the Stars to hear more Robert Vaughn. You know, I'm going to... Yeah. And to be honest, like, there's... 
lines in this movie that are better than Star Wars at times. Yeah, yeah. And the, quite yeah. beyond this, Star Wars is the first. The first Star Wars uses a, a lot of language which George Lucas put in there to make it seem more palatable. But the second and third, the only reason why they work in their writing is because of a lot of the improvised lines and and things that were were added in later on. I've also I've been taking this movie to task for ripping off Star Wars. Star Wars ripped off a lot of other media. <laughs> yeah. To be perfectly fair. And and this is kind of it's kind of a, a similar thought that I've had with Marvel recently, where the reason Marvel is so successful, like the MCU specifically, um, is so successful, it really has nothing to do with them having original ideas, because there's almost nothing in Marvel or Star Wars that's original. Um, it's mo- it's heavily borrowed from other things and repackaged, but it's the right. execution. Right. And this is a movie that. It borrows so heavily from things, but it does enough of it does enough to differentiate itself, and it does almost enough to really be like unique and um, have its own life. And yeah, I would watch it again. I wouldn't say I love it, but I wanted I wanted to love it. And like mid partway through the movie, I found myself really rooting for the movie and wanting to wanting it to stick the landing and wanting to like it. Yeah, and I would um, I would. I would love to see a cut of this movie where they just took out half the space battle shots. In, yeah. It'd be shorter, easier to swallow with a lot, all the good nuggets of, of scenes where they have the good dialogue and, and, and fun, weird character stuff. You know, it's, it's that type of thing where I got to sit through another space battle, you know, yeah. I gotta sit through another thing here. All right. Can we just get through this and get to the cool plot point? Like, let's, let's just move on here. Cause again, it's not like when you're watching star Wars, you know, they, they make it more of like a dog fight scene. You know, right. where, you, where you, you get stress and the emotion. And that's, I mean, I think that's the big distinguishing characteristic of a budget film um, versus versus what we have here. Yeah. A big, a big budget film versus what we have here. Well, mm. the other thing about this movie, which I found very enjoyable, speaking of budget, and they tried in the parodies, they, they tried to even take the Akira Kurosawa wipes uh, of scenes, mm-hmm. which George Lucas, of course, parodied as well in I Star Wars. Too. The side wipes, the up and down wipes, but they they take the wrong ones. They take the wipes <laughs> that you use in um, like your local cable TV access channel uh, when you have when you have like a live editor, and they do like a diamond wipe or like a like a uh, you know like a, a blend wipe where it's the bars and things like that. Like you're watching a Brady Bunch episode, and they transition between scenes on that. <laughs> Um, it's very like 70s and 60s retro, which wasn't what Kurosawa was doing. <laughs> they they mm-hmm. used the wrong wipes frequently in this film. Uh, when I looked up the budget, it, it turns out this is, um, at the time when it came out, it was uh, Roger Corman's, um, the most expensive film that he had produced, which probably goes back to your point earlier, Jason, about like why he kind of toned down the raunchiness and why he tried to make it a little more accessible uh, to wider audiences because it was the most money he had spent on a movie. So he probably wanted to try to guarantee it wouldn't just have like a niche audience and would really get, um, be able to show, be shown to maybe to kids. I don't know. I don't think any of the three of us have kids, but would, would you show this movie to kids? Would you sell tickets to this movie to, to a family? I mean, there's so many other movies that they can watch in replacement of this movie, yeah. um, but it's not going to really, 
hurt them. Otherwise, they might be confused an awful lot. Just because yeah, there's... this movie wouldn't be bad for kids. That's a good way to put it. It wouldn't be bad for kids, but I wouldn't there... voluntarily show it to them <laughs> on purpose. Right. It's, it's not a plot. It's not a plot that's easy to follow for kids. There's a lot of of names and places being dropped. They don't. There's not much action to it. Mm-hmm. The action is in space battles, which are bad action. It's, it's hard to follow action. So for for children who are watching a film, uh, it, it might not be the best choice. Yeah, it feels like a deep cut, right? You probably show your kids Star Wars and. Mm-hmm. 2001 a space odyssey the day the earth stood still and then if they express an interest in the genre you can start going into the, <laughs> the bottom of the drawer <laughs> right right just maybe leave it on the background like who's this, who's this guy robert vaughn what's him what's his deal well yeah i'd show them a cut that's just the robert vaughn scenes yeah um, so the the, the I, we didn't act i mean did we do we talk about the lead actor uh what is his name uh shad shad um, uh, he played uh, John Boy on the Waltons. John, yep, yeah, John, uh, not John Saxon. That was the Seder. Um, Richard Thomas. Richard, Richard Thomas. Thomas. Yeah, and he's he's. I guess. I mean, was he considered a heartthrob at that time? Kind I think like so. He, I mean, he was cute. Heartthrob, like, and he's bringing back the uh, the um, uh, the uh, beauty mark, uh, which is something we don't mm-hmm. see anymore with actors. And I can say this because I have one myself. I wish we bring back more beauty marks. Uh, which of course Cindy Crawford of course just celebrates it, but he has he has that that wonderful beauty mark. In fact, I I can say this because I have multiple beauty marks and I have to go get them looked at. <laughs> I have to go to the dermatologist. Um, but yeah, it's it's this uh it, he's he's one of those actors that uh, was big on TV, like really big at the time, and they brought him aboard as opposed to Mark Hamill, who was really wasn't a big name when he was brought on to Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So they're relying heavily in this movie on star power to drive it. I thought, I mean, I said it before, Thomas really surprised me. It was, I know it was, he's the callow youth, the good pilot who wants to do good and out in the universe and has, is naive. And so he's he's very much Luke Skywalker, but I thought he kind of carried the movie. He had this, mm-hmm. even though he was a young actor at the time, he had this gravity to him. I wanted to watch him. I wanted to root for him. He was authentic. He was genuine. And a little bit of a badass. He had the, there was this scene when he's trapped on Doctor Hephaestus's sex station, and um, <laughs> and and um, the, the the daughter's name Lou Nanelia. You know, Nanelia is something like you really want to go back to Akir, and he says, "Oh yes, I'm going back." Like with t- he's he's under lock and key. He's like, "I'm going back." Mm-hmm. Total conviction, and just like a little moment like that. So he was young and inexperienced, but he had. He had um, uh, he was diligent in his mission, and um, and I think that really helped carry the movie. Yeah, I liked him. Um, all right, we've gotten a little bit off track from uh, from my question, but let's oh, yeah. let's circle back to lose big three number two. Um, <laughs> in your in y'all's opinion, which body part uh, makes for the best design to design spaceships after? Uh, people say a lot that, like, if you look at most rocket ships, they're very phallic, like, mm-hmm. in real life. Um, and then in movies, it's even more pronounced and exaggerated most of the time. Uh, but this movie had, we didn't talk about this, but we did talk about Shad's ch- ship and how it's boobs. We didn't talk oh. about Cayman's ship and how it is in a, a, a vagina, for sure. Like, it's 100% <laughs> a vagina. It actually pulls uh, Shad's ship inside of it at one point. Um <laughs> So, what do we think? Do boobs, a penis, or a vagina 
what should we be modeling ships after? Are we limited or some, to those or three some other? No, yeah, yeah, great call. Um, not <laughs> limited to just those three. I kind of like a blockier ship, which doesn't really correspond well to the human anatomy. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what would that be, like a foot? <laughs> like I, like I, I, um, you know, because it's got compartments kind of and like little knobs. And I, I mean, um, uh-huh. so I'm going to go with foot. Uh, it's got a heel. It's got ankles. Like just I like a ship with like appendages and moving parts. And so, yeah. I- yeah, I, I think I'm on on Evan's uh, line of thought. Well, I like I like the hand ships, the ones that come mm. down like a lander. You know, uh, you know, so ah. they have you know kind of like a uh, like legs that come out, and then they mm-hmm. can, like, space move. cowboy ship was kind of like that. Space cowboy ship kind of looks like a frog at times in mm-hmm. the way that its legs are are, are out there. Uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, I, I like the 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 hand look of the ship. Um, yeah. So and Evan and Jason the, are team extremity. Yeah, hand, yeah, a hand, hand or a foot. Would, hand, both of those would work. Hands and feet. That's right. Mm. I mean, I guess Evan, do you have a, a a foot fetish for your for your ship here? This is a Corman. Movie. I think it might have just been revealed to me. This is kind of a major <laughs> breakthrough for me. <laughs> um, I want to see. I want to see a ship that's just a big mouth, just a giant mouth, and like it opens to like fire lasers out of it. Um, mm. Like like yeah. Andros in Star Fox, it's just yeah, a big yeah. If I go down, I'm taking you with me. <laughs> um, all right, awesome. Uh, so this movie was um, semi successful in in theaters. You know, we talked about it made like nine million more than its than its budget. Um, it wasn't as successful as Star Wars in the uh, merchandise um, <laughs> realm. But if they did make action figures of the characters in this movie, which action figure would you want to get? Like, you can only get one. Your mom's like, you get one Battle Beyond the Stars action figure or, <laughs> or vehicle uh, for Christmas. Which oh, one do you want? Would it be me now or me as a kid? Um, I'm asking you now, things. but... I mean, I, I don't know. I still collect uh, action figures and stuff, so it's a valid question for me. <laughs> Yeah. So I don't know about you guys, but yeah. So the characters as a kid I would want to get were definitely Gelt and Sador. Like that mm-hmm. Sador. Those are those are the two I would like. I want to get the bad guy. And I want to get the closest thing to a bad guy that's a good guy. Like those are the two ones as a kid that I want to get. If I was an adult right now, what would look really cool on my shelf would be Saint X-Men. You know, she's got that really amazing uh costume. And I think did she have wings? I can't even remember. You know, she had a, mm-hmm. a really elaborate you know costume it, it really stood out of course you know it, she looks pretty good especially on the shelf there so Perfect. um as an adult i'd probably buy hers okay evan so i spent a lot of time looking at those ships i love them like, like i said i each one had they, i loved how unique they were right each one felt like it was from a different world and from a different cultural and historical context but I think the ship that I dug the most was um, Cayman ship. I really liked the the sleekness of it. Um, uh, and like when he's making that suicide run underneath the hammerhead uh, ship, the uh, Sador ship, really cool. So I think I'd want like a, I don't know, like a 12 inch model of that on my mantle. That would be pretty badass. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, yeah, I, I, Jason, you and I had almost the same answer. I, uh, Gelt, um, uh, definitely. I want an action figure of Gelt with like his throne and like a little gun oh. that he just sort of like rests okay. on the arm of the throne. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Um, I, so 
<laughs> well, I would want I would want a I would want Sadar, but he has to have the removable arm. He has mm-hmm. to come with an arm that pops on and off, and you could go oh. ahead and change it. <laughs> like the old Jurassic arm. Park battle damage. Battle Remember damage, those toys yeah, from the nineties? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna link. I'm gonna put, drop this link in the show notes. But I was just um, looking something up, and Jason, I'm gonna share this in the chat for you so you can look at it. Apparently, they made one action figure from this movie. Which character do you think it is? Oh boy, I'm loading. It takes forever. I, I'll give you a hint. It did not come out in 1980. Like the the action figure came out. It looks like pretty recently. Oh, yeah, released in 2001. There she is. Yeah. Saint X-Men. <laughs> Saint X-Men. It's actually, it's a pretty cool looking action figure, to be honest. Is that her black latex look? I, I'm not looking at it. Or is it the uh, the styrofoam headgear? It's, uh, she's got the styrofoam headgear, and it's like a red dress with the um, the styrofoam, like, bra that, like, <laughs> looks like fingers just grabbing her boobs, you know? <laughs> Um, all right. Pretty cool. Uh, so, all right. So Evan, so that was lose big three, Evan. Um, I lied. There's always two bonus questions at the end all of right. the episode. So time for the bonus questions. Uh, this is a section that we call what's your snack. So Evan, what is your favorite movie snack? Um, and since you watched this movie at home, uh, maybe it's not the same one at like the movie theater, but like, what's, do you like to, do you like to snack while watching a movie? And if so, what do you like to eat? That's a great question. So I have a lot of idiosyncrasies when it comes to movie watching. And actually, I um, because I'm so persnickety about it, I can no longer eat while watching movies, at least watching a movie for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But that said, I still love that buttery movie theater popcorn. So uh, when Beth, my wife, and I go to the movies, we get there like 20 minutes early with our snacks. I, 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 I inhale everything before the opening credits start so I can still get that snack in my system, but then watch the movie in total concentration. Um, when I was a kid and I didn't have all those hangups, I'd get the movie popcorn, but my favorite were the snow caps, those non-parels, mm. you know? Um, I, I, I don't get those anymore so much. So I, I guess my answer would be that buttery, that fake buttery movie theater popcorn um, and then at home, um, really anything goes, whatever we got in the cupboard, you know, snack wise, but, uh, snow caps and popcorn historically have been my go-tos. Okay. Uh, Jason, did you snack on anything for battle beyond the stars? You know, I, I, um, I, pl- I planned to have a little snack, um, but I had just eaten dinner. Um, I had some steak tips, some delicious steak tips and some, uh, bourbon glazed uh candied yams which were delicious wow. so i didn't i didn't snack for battle beyond the stars but i did enjoy a nice uh dirty martini uh, okay. with a uh with three garlic stuffed olives so that was my my wonderful delicious drink while watching battle beyond the stars and i i, I was it was a shame if i knew it was going to be scotch and soda i would have done that you know, I would have, and I, I, and then halfway through, I thought about maybe I should go ahead and make a scotch and soda, but I thought to myself, you know what? Scotch and soda is really awful. It's not very refreshing. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to like scotch. You have to like that peat flavor. So I, you know, I, I was like, you know, maybe next time, maybe next time. Yeah. Personally, I, I like the scotch and soda without the soda. Um, but yeah, uh, I had some Australian licorice shout out to Daryl Lee, Australian licorice is the best. Um, that is what I, that's, that's something I tend to snack on a lot during movies. Uh, should 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> Maybe slow down on the. Australian I probably should slow down on the on the candy. To be honest, <laughs> do they sell it like in bulk? Can you buy it in bulk at Costco or something? Not at Costco, but I did buy like a a, a, a box of it because um, I was buying so much of it at one point at the like local store, and then they didn't have it one day, so I ordered it from Amazon, and you can get like a box of like twelve, um, and that was a mistake. Uh, it was, it was great. It was a great mistake, but it was a mistake. Anyway, lose, um, no, we're, we're past lose big three. Uh, bonus question, bonus question number two, Evan, uh, and Jason, if we were to replace two characters in battle beyond the stars with Whoopi Goldberg and Danny DeVito, (laughs) who would you replace? How would it improve the film? Okay, Danny DeVito would be Space Cowboy, just because I felt, <laughs> again, I, I love Papard, but it was a sleepy, understated performance, which I think is like the last thing the movie needed. Yeah. I don't know I don't know if he was phoning it in. I, I know most, I, a big part of the budget went to his salary, along with Vaughn's. Vaughn's was earned, Papard, not so much. But mm-hmm. so I'd replace him, because DeVito would bring that zany off-the-wall energy to that role. It would still be weird to have like a, isn't he from the New Jersey area? It would be weird for him to be playing a Texan. I, he'd make it work. He'd make it work somehow. Um, and, uh, and it would bring a little, uh, kind of a funnier take on that role. Um, Whoopi Goldberg, I guess would, um, you know what? Let's make, let's make, uh, space Cowboys love interest. Whoopi Goldberg, put them together. You know, okay. the, um, the one who, uh, you know, they could share a scotch, and soda on the rocks together <laughs> and uh, do some improv. I bet that they, you know, it would be a great, like three minutes of them just uh, uh, breaking each other's balls. I bet that would be an awesome scene. I, I think you that. might be onto something, Evan. There's, <laughs> a, there's a joke, a running gag on it's always sunny in Philadelphia regarding uh, uh, Danny DeVito. He's always eating in every scene. And he's <laughs> talked about this in interviews. He just loves to eat in scenes. So if you watch the she- series, he's always eating, whether it's a, a hot dog, an apple, um, some sausages. He's just eating every every scene. That's what Space Cowboy does. He he drinks scotch. He eats hot dogs. He's always putting food in his mouth. So oh, that's yes. Good... There's an Always Sunny episode focused around Devito eating hot dogs when they go to a convenience store. Right. So, <laughs> there you go. There you huh. go. I've seen, I'll try to find it to link it in the show notes. But I, I saw this uh, video of. Danny DeVito giving a acting class on how to eat an egg on stage. (laughs) And it's magnificent. Um, Let me just set a reminder for myself to do that. (laughs) DeVito eating egg. (laughs) And I'll know what that means. (laughs) Um, What about you, Jason? Yeah, Jason. You know, I I like the absurd. I would love to see both Danny DeVito and Whoopi Goldberg uh, um, as Nestor. (laughs) <laughs> yes because yeah. it would just make no sense um and then of course they're, and then they're, they're john toning. cena like have a third one that's john <laughs> cena and like yeah we're clones obviously of each other obviously we're clones we have the same consciousness and danny devito of course has a, this distinct voice i'm i'm a clone i'm a very good <laughs> it would be goldberg just uh, it would be great it would be wonderful would be goldberg i like your idea her uh her swim cap because she has her hair is larger <laughs> than Danny DeVito's. It definitely is just <laughs> what appears to be a very large white uh, swim cap over her hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it's uh, Whoopi Goldberg is really good at like dressing someone down. She just has like that really good voice um, where she can just cut you down in, in a moment. Uh, and I think she'd be great for Nell, the the AI voice of the ship. Oh, oh hands um, down, hands down. 
Big DeVito, uh, I, th- I think the answer is obvious, and I'm surprised neither of you arrived, landed on it. St. X-Men. DeVito is St. X-Men <laughs> Valkyrie. It makes sense. Complete <laughs> sense. That was my second <laughs> choice, though. You took it. Uh. <laughs> All right. So uh, that was Battle Beyond the Stars. Um, Evan, Jason, I want to thank you so much for coming on to Robots vs. Dinosaurs today. Um, so in your in y'all's opinion, which one is cooler, uh, robots or dinosaurs? Well, I'm happy to give in the for the purposes of this movie, I'd have to give it to dinosaurs because I think Cayman is cooler than well. Okay, is Nell the is Nell the robot? Ooh, okay. <laughs> Nell greater than uh, Nell greater than Cayman greater than loser androids. <laughs> so I guess <laughs> so. You let me. I don't know because Nell is the coolest because she's sassy. Mm-hmm. She knows what's up. Her, that scene at the end when she kind of loses her memory is kind of unexpectedly sad um, and kind of like 3PO in Rise of uh, Skywalker, right? And um, so, you know what? I'm going to re- revise that. If Nell is the robot representative, robots win this round. Okay. Jason? Yeah, I'm on I'm on uh, on Evan's side with the robots in this movie are, are definitely better than, than Kamen. Um, Kamen is great. I love Kamen. Uh, but he's not representative of dinosaurs in general. Uh, the but the the robots in this movie do uh, do help in a big way. Even the even the cruddy ones on Doctor Hephaestus' ship. There's <laughs> that one robot with the glasses that uh, Saunders. Goes into, yeah, Saunders goes into the force field and disables it so he can escape. So yeah, <laughs> and, and then uh, and Shad goes, "You dummy!" to that robot. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he's helping him, and he calls him a dummy. Um, but yeah, definitely. I'm in the, the, the boat that robots are the plus one of this episode, uh, helping out. Um, and of course, spaceships with boobs are great in any scenario. Nice. Y'all heard it here first. Robots win this round. Um, well, thank you both for being on the show. Uh, it was, it was a real pleasure. Um, Evan in the future, would you want to come back and maybe talk about a more like dinosaur themed movie or any other, do you have any other movies uh, that you could tease the audience that you might want to talk about on a future episode. Absolutely. This has been such a pleasure. I feel so grateful to be a part of this. Yes. So I had, t- I had um, teased this a long time ago, but the movie is Future War, um, mm. which is from like 1998 or 1999. Very much a B movie, low budget. I think we'd all have a blast watching it. It's kind of that's so bad. It's good. And it's got, it definitely has dinosaurs. It definitely has cyborgs. Um it satisfies both requirements. So I probably easy to find streaming somewhere. So I would absolutely love to return and be like the champion for a future war. That could be my nominee. Oh my God. Awesome. Future war. That sounds like a, like a, my time machine type time travel movie. <laughs> oh my God. My science project. Yeah. My science project. Yeah. Well, was, didn't that movie have like an alternate title in German Germany or something like that? Like my science time, project time, time busters. busters, time, time busters. busters. They tried to copy ghostbusters. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so Evan, you said that you are a video game critic. Where can uh, where can listeners find some of your reviews? Oh, sure. I am currently a senior editor at VGCharts.com. That's charts with a Z for some reason. Um, but it's <laughs> been, it's a great community, a great forum. Um, it's mostly a sales tracking site, so you can monitor kind of this hardware sales of PS5, Xbox Series, Switch, and plus uh, software sales as well in all regions. Uh, North America, Europe, Japan, but we have a really great dedicated team of writers. And um, I, along with a few others, we write reviews, previews, articles, op-eds. 
So hop over to bgcharts.com and check those out. Great. And I'll drop a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Jason, where do you want, where do you want listeners to find you and find stuff you're working on? Um, I got stuff working on. It's always in the background. Um, a lot of it can't talk about, unfortunately, but if you, if I do, uh, find anything, you'll see it on my website, jasonperubia.com. Um, I'll, I'll revise it eventually a couple productions that we're working on, but in the meantime, for some cool content, you know, I definitely recommend, uh, Evan's, Evan's blog post, Evan's, uh, articles, his reviews. Uh, he goes into the, uh, the gaming culture that, that people don't necessarily consider, uh, and, uh, not just, not just the big, uh, tentpole, the big, the big, uh, um, ones that you wouldn't typically find so yeah, definitely i've had a lot of fun uh, reading every, every trip and things and things that i didn't wouldn't necessarily find uh, uh, you know, on, on my feet awesome. appreciate it. yeah uh well thanks again and uh as always live fast fight well and have a beautiful ending <laughs> thank you have a nice day thank you james cameron whatever you do don't go out and assemble a group of seven mercenaries who will eventually t- take me down murder cover-up protocol mcp <laughs> i give the old yuck yuck i think it's a delight now you're john hammond he's telling me to download a hoagie off the internet but why would dinosaurs do this that's an interesting question because humans do have five fingers awa is more powerful than ura you know what this is like a cardboard set that's just crazy cool we need people to write in with hate mail because they're tiny little eight people that don't know how to live in the world yet. Take that, you cocky bastard! Yeah, you go, robots. Godzilla just sent a telepathic message.